1: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod. Pina, Michael, today is a national holiday. It's Boston Celtics have been eliminated day. Obviously, St. Patrick's Day has been canceled yet again this year. Um, your life personally has been ruined. I know you just divulged a few minutes ago that uh, you think you're handling the Celtics exit better than you expected, and yet uh, the first word out of your mouth was, I'm doing horribly. So um, we're, we're going to try to um, work through those feelings, I think, with you, uh, while also uh, previewing a pretty entertaining NBA Finals matchup between the Los Angeles Lakers uh, and the Miami Heat. I don't want to give away the ending, but something something tells me, Michael, that one of the the hosts on this call is probably going to be picking
2: against LeBron and the Lakers. I, I can't imagine who that would be. I yeah, um, this is a tough morning for me. Uh, tough morning for Celtics Nation, but. Uh, I guess I'm just going to have to be consistent throughout this. Oh. And I, you know, I, we're, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll be getting into it for sure, so I don't want to spoil anything, but um, go heat. <laughs> <laughs> go
1: heat. All of a sudden, you've relocated to South Beach. You are uh, just like the people who go south for the winter. I love it. All right. Um, here's what we're going to do, Michael. I've got a whole bunch of rapid-fire questions that I want to get through just to recap what we watched from the conference finals. It was incredible mm-hmm. action, I thought, over the weekend. Now I know it kind of went against you, um, uh, you know, in, in kind of frustrating fashion. But at the same time, uh, you know, for the objective basketball fans out there, they're probably saying, "Hey, this is what we wanted from the end of these conference final series. Big-time players making big-time plays," as somebody like Dick Vitale might say. Um, I think uh, we should start, though, with LeBron James, because I'm pretty sure we're contractually obligated to always start with LeBron James, especially when he goes for a 38-point triple double in a closeout win. Chris Haynes reported um, over the weekend that basically LeBron called his shot before the game. He came over to Haynes and said, you know, I'm going to end this series tonight. You get to that fourth quarter, it turns into this vintage performance, Michael, where it's all below the rim. It's almost all inside the arc. He's going to the turnarounds. He's going to the fadeaway he's drawing the double and kicking out to shooters lots of shades of of last dance highlights I would say maybe even a little bit of an homage to Kobe LeBron did dis, uh, describe how he felt like uh, he connected with Kobe in a way few other people could in terms of their ability to just um, you know process the kinds of sacrifices that greatness requires so there was a ton going on both in that game and in his um, you know post game press conference as well. But um, I know that both you and I had been a little bit skeptical. When does LeBron reach sixth gear? You know, is his uh, is his peak level still as high as it was? Because from a consistency standpoint, he hadn't really been there during these playoffs. We got to look at the peak there in uh, in Game Five, didn't we? And that peak's still pretty darn high.
2: Yeah, LeBron is incredible. Um, I. It's like, it's really tough to say you were surprised by anything that that man does. I I honestly didn't necessarily see a a 15 for 25, 16 rebound, 10 assist performance out of him. I don't want to say ever again, but it's just, as you were kind of outlining, the ways that he was scoring, the ways that he was facilitating, um, his total control from every area of the floor Uh, and it was getting to the point where you know I'm now surprised when LeBron James misses a jump shot which is something that you know I try to go back in time and think about you know how the San Antonio Spurs guarded him when he was trying to win his first uh, get his first rings with the Miami Heat um, and you know ducking under screens and giving him those pull-ups and now it's just like He's the whole package. Uh, Athletically, he's not exactly where he was back then in his prime, but this is just like a different iteration of his prime, and he's just a brilliant basketball player. All right,
1: let's put a a finer point on this praise, (laughs) Michael, because I think that uh, coming into the season, I did not rank him as the best player in basketball. I know you steadfastly argued on behalf of Kawhi Leonard all season long calling him... Not only the most underrated superstar in the league, but the best player in basketball. Giannis Mm. is holding his second consecutive MVP Mm. trophy. Anthony Davis has actually carried the Lakers for a lot of this postseason stretch. Yes, Yet, are we going to fall into the gigantic pit of recency bias, which I'm not sure I'm going to be able to restrain myself from, and come away from that Western Conference Finals saying, well, okay, when push really comes to shove, LeBron's still the best player in the league. He took the throne back after uh, Kawhi Leonard had a short stay on it. He's the guy again.
2: I think that the margins are just so thin in this conversation, like thinner than they've ever been with regards to uh, you know when LeBron has been kind of at the top. It was just so clear that he was at the top. So it's like if someone were to say to me, LeBron's the best player in the world, I'm not really going to like get upset or refute you for having that opinion. I do think that some of the other guys that you mentioned, minus Giannis, who I just don't think is in this conversation just yet, um, have their case. And in particular, Anthony Davis. Um, I mean, we're now in a situation where AD could be the finals MVP, and you know he could lead the team in just about every significant statistical category except for assists where LeBron is just you know leading the postseason Um, plus minus he's a a playoff high right now among all players plus 135 Uh, the defense is the defense we all know what he's capable of particularly when he's playing center so I think if you you know I think it's kind of just like a check back in two weeks and and check the temperature then, because LeBron is incredible. If you want to say that he's the best player in the world right now, there's just a mountain of evidence to support your claim. Uh, that said, I could totally see the argument for A.D., Um and if they win the title in commanding fashion and he continues to play as well as he has, because he's been the I think he's been the a much bigger revelation to me personally, um, the way he's come through in the playoffs and the different ways. I mean, he's been tremendous. So, uh, you know, I, I and they complement each other so well. So this is just such a really difficult question to answer. I don't think that there's I don't think there is an answer, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really drives home the fact that Anthony Davis was linked to the Celtics in rumors for like seven years, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> why, why would you have to bring that up? <laughs> Sorry, it's going to be a long podcast for you, Michael. I've got a few in the chamber here. Um, no, I, I'm with you that Anthony Davis has been a bigger revelation than LeBron because he has done things on bigger stages than he's ever done previously, and he's made it look easier than I expected, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he, he kind of torched both the Rockets um, and the uh, and the Nuggets, and frankly, the Blazers, too. I mean, and maybe that's not quite as impressive given the state of their front line with the health and all that, but he has just been absolutely on fire. I still think, to me, the difference between LeBron and everybody else, it's kind of cliche, but it's his mind, right? It's the mm-hmm. orchestration, his, his ability to control everything on the court. Kawhi Leonard and Giannis and whoever else you want to put in that conversation, even Jokic, I mean, the guys who are on that like first-team All-NBA consideration, Harden, they all lost control of their respective series in major ways, right? Things were happening around them that they were not able to sort of re-exert their influence. And while LeBron's peak levels, especially athletically, have not been that high, his floor level throughout this playoffs in terms of orchestrating, setting up Anthony Davis, keeping his team... You know, organized on offense and at least functional, even even during some colder stretches, and then also operating at a very high level defensively has been excellent. So it's been a little bit of a different look. We're we're used to LeBron flying through and by and over everyone, and this has been much more controlled. I wrote my column after Game Five just on the power of his mind. You know, before some games recently, Michael, he's been doing the deep breathing exercises that anyone who does meditation apps will probably recognize to kind of get himself right. I'm sure people saw before game five, he was just kind of staring out into space, I think visualizing what he was going to do to the uh, the Denver Nuggets. After mm-hmm. game five, he's sitting there on the court kind of processing all these different thoughts he said is his journey to Los Angeles, the fact that Anthony Davis is going to get his first shot at a title, um, and, and all these other kinds of thoughts going through his mind. It's clear he's being very reflective at this point and bottom line is he's stuck in a bubble. There's a lot of time to think and so it's a natural <laughs> uh, adjustment, but I, you know, there's no question to me when you look at like the headlining players from the Western Conference finals. Jokic, I love Jokic, okay? But he did not have the necessary discipline with his foul trouble to really put his mark on that series. They want to blame the officials all they want, that's fine. He was not thinking the game at a high enough level to keep himself on the court. And his team got run over. And Jamal Murray did his absolute best that he possibly could. He ran out of gas at the end. But the mental side for Jokic needs to improve. Uh, if he wants to become a champion. LeBron obviously has already done it. He's had to work through those kinds of things back in uh, 2011, where he had some real faltering moments in that first finals uh, with Miami. And now he's just operating, you know, at a PhD level in a class with a bunch of freshmen, it feels like right now. So, um, (laughs) you know, to me, uh, that was the difference in this series. And that's why I'm going to give him that crown.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I I hear you. Um, It's really funny when we try to talk about LeBron the way that like the difficulty of separating just the career achievement this is year 17 he's with a completely different uh, supporting cast than he's ever had before um, a new head coach and he's still just getting it done and uh, separating that uh, ridiculousness and that impressive um, accomplishment with just what he's doing in real time relative to everybody else at his age Uh, it's like he's just, it's stunning. Um, and it's a a
1: perfect contrast right now because of the heat situation, mm -hmm. right? So LeBron is still going. Wade has retired. Chris Bosh had a scary health situation. He's been long retired. Basically the only guy left in Miami is Udonis Haslam, who's essentially an assistant coach at this point. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe like a chunky, uh, uh, a chunky soup sales guy. uh, It seems like based on some of his recent comments about how much he loves that chunky soup. Um, And here's LeBron, still ticking, still possibly going to be finals MVP, still, you know, potentially going to win another title. Um, You know, you have a lot of respect for Riley and Spolstra, who are just continuing to grind themselves. But, like, those careers are built to be 20- or 30-year careers, right? Like, the, <laughs> a peak-level performer like LeBron's not built to be able to do that uh, usually for 20 years, and he just keeps going and going and going. All right, Michael, I do want to uh, ask you just more of an X's and O's type question. When you look back at this Western Conference Finals, what were the key differences between the Lakers and the Nuggets, besides maybe just the star power of—the uh, you know, individual star power of LeBron and AD— and do you think the advantages they were able to show against Denver will translate against Miami? Because to me, these are two very different opponents, right? With Denver, um, it's a lot of really impressive scoring and it's, uh, you know, it's there's unselfishness on offense, but still you're, most of it's coming from the two main guys. With Miami, sort of everyone can beat you. And then defensively... Uh, the Heat are just a lot more versatile because they've got Bam in the middle. They're not needing to make the kind of compromises you have to make with Jokic on the court. So which advantages um, did the Lakers enjoy uh, against the Nuggets, and will they translate against the Heat?
2: So when I look at the Lakers, I, I do think that you have to look at just the supporting cast and whether or not certain guys are going to... I think it's really simple. I think... Are players like Rondo going to step up? Is Caruso going to hit his open threes? Is Danny Green going to be able to defend a ball handler and not look like a turnstile and knock down spot-up threes? Is KCP going to be able to run the floor, finish in transition, uh, press the ball 94 feet, and uh, impact the game in transition and hit open threes um, the way that he did in the conference finals? Um, I think that those are key factors, I, I but, like, Honestly, I know that you know everyone who's been listening to uh, us throughout this entire playoff run will say that I've you know doubted the Lakers. Um, I guess you could put it mildly; that would be a mild description of how I've felt about them. You've picked again against them at every turn, Michael. <laughs> um, and I think a, a, a huge part of that is uh the supporting cast and the uh m- my trepidation to believe that they could generate enough offense in a half court setting and so far they haven't really needed to generate offense in a half court setting i think against miami which is like i think miami is the first real defense no disrespect to Uh, Actually, I guess all the disrespect to the Rockets, Blazers I'm glad you're
1: with this movement, Michael, because I've been saying that for a long time. No disrespect, but disrespect. I think that should just enter the lexicon. Let's not be afraid to disrespect every once in a while.
2: Well, Denver, you know, I thought that their defense way earlier in the season, a million years ago, was getting to be a, at a near championship level because of their cohesion. But like, they just broke down in the first couple of rounds. And I mean, they had good moments here and there and stretches, but their defense is just in no way uh, comparable to Miami's. In my opinion, after watching Miami's defense, just, I mean, you, you shout out like the individual pieces in Miami. Um, you have Jimmy who is excellent. And he kind of poses an issue for LeBron that LeBron hasn't had to uh, combat so far. Um, You have Bam, obviously, who, you know, I would honestly not be surprised at all if Bam ended up on LeBron and a lot of possessions in this series, because uh, you would presume that I think that the Lakers will have to downsize eventually, if not right away, honestly. And... Uh, You would assume that Bam will be the one who's guarding Anthony Davis, and uh, I think that they will switch that pick and roll, LeBron AD pick and roll quite a bit. I don't even know if the Lakers will be able to go to it that often because of how often they'll switch, and Bam can guard anybody in the world. He's absolutely incredible. Um, If I had to pick who's going to win Defensive Player of the Year next year, I would pick Bam Adebayo. He's just leaps and bounds. Incredible basketball player. so having him as just this guy who can kind of roam the floor, protect the rim, do it all, plus their zone, which, like, if if you were to have a zone, um, like I guess just like I look at the Lakers' offense and how they're constructed, and their biggest weaknesses, particularly in the half court, uh, are in their outside shooting. They love to get to the rim. They have really good finishing at the basket. They love high pick and rolls, lobs to to the bigs and the dunker spot, and all that. The zone just takes that away, so if you're forcing guys to make shots, that puts a lot of stress, as I was saying earlier, on that supporting cast, and guys like Rondo and Caruso and Danny Green and KCP and Markeith Morris, and at the end of the day, that's like, and also I should say Anthony Davis, who has really, you know, he shot 33% from the mid-range in the regular season and, and has been basically lights out. Uh, in the playoffs. So if he starts to miss those tough mid-range jumpers, I think this offense looks even worse in the half court than it did earlier. So I I think that the Miami Heat have a lot of different options defensively to throw at the Lakers that the Lakers have not seen yet. And I think that their resistance could be very difficult to deal with.
1: No, I think you're making a lot of really good points. This was a question I was going to ask you later, but when you're breaking down that Jimmy LeBron 80 BAM type matchup and how Miami has those pieces to combat LA stars. When you look around the league, how many other teams actually have a better pairing or a comparable pairing to Jimmy and BAM to to throw on the LA's two-headed monster? Because, you know, I think that BAM is probably the best suited player in the league to guard Anthony Davis at this point from a
2: quickness strength length intelligence timing standpoint right 100 he's the best to guard like anyone like player x honestly like he's like I, i you tell me a player and i'll say that bam is the ideal defender to stop that player is how i feel about bam
1: well, uh, rightfully so. I mean, his game six was absolutely ridiculous. We'll get that, to that in a minute. But so I do think that's going to be an adjustment. What I'm kind mm-hmm. of hoping for on the zone stuff is that LeBron finds a way to just absolutely bust it open. Maybe it's just putting his head down, getting into the pain, or, or whatever it might be. And then we can have a big referendum on how he doesn't think NBA teams should play zone, right? I, I, I want to have that kind of a conversation. Like, does zone belong in the NBA? Like, is there some way that uh, he will kind of like troll everyone after, you know, having 25 and 12? or something like that against the zone. Uh, we'll see if that happens or not. Do you think they'll use that much zone? I could see it a lot, especially when LeBron is off the court because that's really when the Lakers offense um, you know, gets stagnant and really struggles for uh, options. They rely on Rondo for playmaking, and then they try to force feed Davis. I could see them wanting to use zone in that situation and just saying, all right, any second unit guy on the Lakers, go ahead and bomb away. Go ahead and get your Marcus Smart on. Go one for eight from three. We do not care.
2: No, I think that – thank you for taking that unnecessary shot once again. I think that they will go zone a lot. I think they'll go small and switch across the board a lot. Um, I think they'll match straight up a lot. I think they'll, you know, drop bam. I think they'll switch it up a lot. And I think that they will – I think they'll trap. I think they'll blitz all of us. I mean, they against the Celtics, the zone was kind of the headlining – uh, uh, scheme that Spo went with, and he had a lot of success throughout the series. But in reality, what they did uh, was just like do a lot of different things, and they caught Boston off guard a ton with how they wanted to defend, defend some of the pick and roll actions. And so I just see a whole bunch of stuff. I think Spo is the best coach in the world. I wrote this piece earlier today at GQ for those who would like to check that out about him and just how much I admire him as a basketball coach. And I, I, I think he's just, like, I think there's a lot of talented coaches in the league. I, I would not take any of them over Eric Spolstra. So I think he'll have everybody ready. I think his defense will be ready. I'm, I'm interested why you said that they'll go zone mostly when LeBron is off the floor. As a, You don't think that that will be an effective strategy against him?
1: Well, we'll see. I mean, first of all, I haven't trusted his three-point shot that much um, during these playoffs. The, the percentages mm-hmm. aren't terrible, but you could even see in Game 5 when he really wanted the, the buckets late, he wasn't going to that step-back three that he's he's liked for a while. He was trying to get himself into the mid-range and, and go there. So I guess from that standpoint, are you going to dare him to shoot a little bit? Uh, it's possible. I just think that a lot of what froze up Boston was their inability to penetrate that zone and I think that you know guys like Tatum got caught up you know looking at it from the outside when Boston did have success it was because Brown put his head down kind of got through towards the hoop and, and maybe in some of those situations Miami wasn't in in zone as much but I feel like if you can I just don't I'm not convinced that Miami's zone is going to be able to keep LeBron out of the paint off the dribble that he's just going to be able to find ways to work through it and if you do so, collapse the zone <laughs> then you're creating you know lots right. of high scoring opportunities for everyone.
2: Right, I actually uh, earlier in the playoffs, I wanted to, I wanted to look ahead and just see how the Lakers fared against zone defenses this season, and you know the, the sample size is incredibly small, but I was looking at the uh, the Blazers series because the Blazers win zone at one point late in that series when it looked like, I mean, it was just like out of desperation. So they go to it and I, I tweeted the the clips, but LeBron basically just drives right by CJ McCollum at the top of the zone, gets a layup, <laughs> and like it's like he the, a play later, um, like drives at CJ, uh Nurkic steps up and he has like no problem finishing over Nurkic, um, draws a foul or something like that. So I think that there's some credence there, but I also think that Miami Heat's yeah, Miami's personnel
1: is way better than that, right? So like, yeah, there's there's nobody out there on an island who you can just kind of like fly by, and they've got a lot of length. At the same time, like LeBron's got a lot of physicality, and he's you know he's seen every scheme that there is. So there's just kind of an inherent trust level baked in, uh, and I also think that he's probably been studying and thinking about that for the last three days, right? I mean, I think that's going to be a lot of their game prep coming into this series. Is like he realizes. There's not really anyone one-on-one in Miami defensively, unless it's Bam who's going to give him that much trouble. He's had a lot of success against Jimmy over the years. Now, that's been a very hard-fought battle. Jimmy takes it very, very seriously. I tweeted this the other day, but when I first profiled Jimmy for Sports Illustrated in 2015, Mm -hmm. uh, the woman who adopted him when he was a homeless teenager... Told me that after the Heat Bulls playoff clashes between Jimmy and LeBron, that she banned LeBron sneakers from her household. Her children were not allowed to wear LeBron sneakers (laughs) because that would be disrespectful to Jimmy. I mean, that's how personally they took that rivalry. You'll also remember LeBron hit that amazing game winner against the Bulls um, in the second round. I believe it was in 2015, his first year back in Cleveland. That was a very, very bitter pill for Jimmy to swallow in that moment. I remember just exceedingly high frustration. I had covered that game and that series, really. Uh, So this has been a long time coming for revenge. I know Jimmy's going to bring it. At the same time, I mean, LeBron has has kind of owned that matchup. And I think that's why you saw the comment from Jimmy last night about, look, if you want to win this thing, you've got to go through a LeBron-led team. I think there's a lot of animosity in terms of wanting to knock off a guy who's kind of always, mm-hmm. uh, you know, been your big brother uh, in that relationship. But at the same time, uh, I don't know if it's a fear factor, but there's a level of respect of like, okay, like we've got to go somewhere we've never For gone shame. before to, to get this thing done. All right. I wanted to um, shift gears here quickly. Um, did Anthony Davis look healthy to you uh, in game five after the ankle tweak? It was a scary scene in the building when he's hobbling around he made the pro move decision of not sitting down on the bench instead he just kept walking around keeping that ankle loose and then he kept right. Back. the
2: sneakers yep
1: yep yep and, and it just came right back uh, and played game five and, and looked pretty solid did you see any lingering effects is that a storyline we need to watch for the finals or is he good to go
2: uh no i don't you know i i don't really i think he looked fine to answer the question um I want to circle back t- for two quick seconds. I know we're we're trying to zoom through here, and we don't want a three hour podcast. But we should mention real quick Andre Iguodala's presence in this series. I mean, he did defend LeBron in the 2015 Finals, and that's the biggest reason why he was the Finals MVP. So, um, as much as Jimmy is, uh, you know, going to take this personally, I do wonder how much Iguodala factors in coming off his Game Six where he hit 19 three pointers out of nowhere. Yeah,
1: look, I have been pretty skeptical of Iguodala's contributions during these playoffs. I mean, mm-hmm. he had some really dumb fouls late in key moments. Um, he's was really passive shooting, you know, just over overpassing at times. And, you know, it also seemed like he was dealing with some health issues. They were limiting his minutes at various points and everything else. And, of course, there's the age factor hanging over all of it. Just when you doubt that guy, he always comes through in the most random ways. And the three pointers were just absolutely ridiculous. Um, in Game Six, he was celebrating and pointing to like the twelve Heat fans in the building. He just needed somebody mm. to acknowledge how ridiculous it was that he was nailing all these threes. Um, in that moment, um, certainly the Celtics fans are probably throwing stuff at their televisions in 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 those mm. situations because I mean it's more <laughs> offensive scoring explosion from him in in one game practically than the rest of the series combined. I'll put it this way, if Miami does win the finals, we will be saying, man, like Andre Iguodala was the X factor, like without his ability to just knock LeBron off his rhythm and and make life miserable, deflect passes, you know, bump him, use some fouls here and there, all that kind of stuff, uh, Miami doesn't get it done. I think that's sort of the way I would frame it. If he is less of an impact maker, then I, I don't really see a way for Miami to do this thing. All right, let's... um really quick tie off the Nuggets season. Look, they did make the conference finals. They did push the Lakers to five games. It really should have been six, and you could argue seven if Jokic had handled his fouls better and Mm -hmm. if uh, AD hadn't hit that uh, buzzer beater in game two. We got a question from Josh in Albuquerque who writes, Jamal Murray's layup was better than MJ's double clutch layup. Look, Murray switched hands twice and he needed to do it to make the shot and he did it against LeBron, so therefore it was better. No disrespect to MJ. I agree with Michael Pena's take from the hiatus that MJ's double clutch shot against the Lakers in the finals is overrated, especially when you consider other iconic moments in his career. Back me up here, Pina. So Josh wants to uh, relitigate uh, your just incendiary take that the uh, MJ spectacular move was actually not that spectacular. Um, do we have a moment of praise though <laughs> for Jamal Murray's spectacular move because it also got compared to a different MJ double clutch layup? People were doing the side by side videos that were just memorizing. I mean, it was almost beat for beat identical. Um, I. I thought that was one of the signature plays of the entire bubble right up there with Murray's other insane layup, the 360 spin move. Did you have a Mm -hmm. favorite between those two? And uh, what did you think of of Murray's uh, performance against the Lakers?
2: Yeah, I mean, on Friday, I ranked my favorite Jamal Murray layups because that one that he did against LeBron was just, I mean, it just inspired me to go and look at all the other ones and see if there were any others that were just as as magical, And I mean, he's just such a creative, brilliant basketball player. Um, I'm really glad that this got brought up because it was one of my first rants on this show as your co-host. And um, I 100% still believe it. And I'm so glad that people were like, oh, wow, he actually did this move against a defender. And not only any defender, but... LeBron James, who is who has been in this series probably the most intimidating rim protector uh, out of anyone. So um, incredible move, uh, incredible player. And How does it feel, Michael, to know that your
1: slandering of the greatest basketball player of all time <laughs> has reached a kindred spirit in Albuquerque, New Mexico? Does that really bring it home for you? You've got people all over the globe here, all over the open floor
2: globe, who are willing to ride with you on this one. It brings a tear to my eye, honestly. Um, I'm just really... I'm, I'm, I'm proud of of Josh for, for pointing it out, for recognizing what is true greatness and what is just faux greatness that is, for whatever reason, memorialized in replays for all of eternity. Um, and, I mean, like that... Look, look, the layup that Murray had, like, it's... I, I, I Everyone has seen it, but it's like... When does he, I, I'm just like, I want to like sit down with him and talk to him about it. Like, when do you realize you're going to do this move? Do you like, or do you ever even consciously understand what you're doing in real time? Cause yeah. like, and when he sets he up d- like he's going to dunk it. And then like, in you have to, your brain has to move so fast to... Shift the ball to the left hand and then shift it back to the right hand. Like, it's just, it's, it was magical. It was magical.
1: No doubt. I mean, the midair chess match between the two of them, right? Because he's only doing those things to adjust to the, the mm-hmm. defense that he's expecting to receive from LeBron. And when did he develop hops, Michael? I mean, I like the, he's a great shooter. I mean, he's athletic. Uh, and he did have actually one a pretty big dunk during the playoffs, but this is not a guy who's like freakishly jumping out of the gym constantly. So the hang time from Jamal Murray there was also pretty special. He just got an extra beat. I don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was just the the positive momentum that he built up. It was like a reward for uh, all of his hard work throughout the bubble. Um, I was a little bit less happy with Denver's other star, And I, I mentioned this earlier with the foul troubles from mm-hmm. Jokic. John in Southern Bohemia writes, I don't pride myself on my skills as a basketball analyst. That's why I rely on your guys' podcast. But last night with only two minutes into the first quarter of game five, Nikola Jokic intentionally fouled Anthony Davis to stop a fast break and I said to myself, game over. Soon enough, the big Serbian was in foul trouble and he was going to sit on the bench. Why would he ever do such a stupid thing after sitting that long in earlier games? John, great basketball analysis. That's actually exactly what I wrote my newsletter about this week. That Euro foul to start game five, Michael, absolutely killed me. It just Mm -hmm. sucked the energy out of my soul because – it's one of those situations like cutting off the nose to spite the face or whatever that uh, that phrase is, where mm-hmm. you think you're um, you're making a smart calculation, but in reality you're actually making a terrible, terrible miscalculation. The idea of the Euro foul in that setup is that you're going to save your your team a basket by just using a foul that you're not going to need. Um, you're going to prevent an easy layup or a wide open three pointer. And in many circumstances, especially if it's a point guard doing it, who's usually like the last guy back, it really winds up being a pretty smart play. And it was so smart and so effective that rulemakers both overseas and in the NBA have to try to take it away with the whole idea of the clear path foul um, and uh, just other tweaks to kind of prevent that by, you know, putting in stiffer punishments with the extra free throws and you get to retain possession and all that because they want the game to be more free flowing. Um, so it's a smart and kind of annoying play, uh, but usually it winds up paying off in that situation. For Jokic, it was absolutely a brain fart. No other way to put it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been in foul trouble multiple times over the course of this series. Right? He is going to be central to whatever their effort is in that game. They got off to, uh, you know, a fairly even start in the first quarter. But that foul just put him behind the eight ball. He got a second foul midway through the first quarter. He has to wind up sitting for a long stretch. He comes back in the in the second quarter and gets you know a debatable charge call, which is going to frustrate Nuggets fans. But he already had the two. He already got that first poor decision, and now it's just compounding. Now he has to sit the entire rest of the second quarter. You know, he basically um, missed, I think, 18 minutes of game action in what was an elimination game. If you're Michael Malone, you would have preferred to play him, you know, 44 minutes Mm -hmm. rather than 30. They're up by two when he goes out with two fouls, and they're down by 10 uh, when they start the second half. That to me was the game. Your best player has got to be more disciplined and more aware of time score situations. And I think for Jokic, he's like the smartest guy in the NBA on offense. He really needs to improve his timing and I think his discipline defensively. There's just a lot of cheap fouls. I mean, even Danny Green flying to the rim for a layup to to Jokic's second foul, you don't really need to go and try to block that shot, right? There's a pretty good chance Danny Green's going to smoke that layup and if he make doesn't it make it, yeah. Yeah, okay. And you don't need to hack him. You don't need to, um, you know, get into some of these scrums over rebounds that he was where he's just like, you know, following the play for a beat too long, you know, grabbing somebody's wrist and then boom, now it's an easy foul call. I just think that Jokic actually bailed out these referees a lot and I thought it was telling to me that Michael Malone's working these officials through the media there for a couple of times, almost kind of pointing to the free throw disparity. But when push really came to shove, he never wanted to use the uh, refs as an excuse in this series because I think Mm -hmm. deep down he knew Jokic has to be better, right? These are fouls. He's getting called for legit fouls. And I think that's just the next step for Jokic. And I'm not trying to pick on him because, by the way, Giannis has the exact same problem. Usually it's more about the offensive player control fouls for Giannis. Rather than the, the silly defensive fouls for Jokic. But both those guys, if they do want to take the next step, you know, being able to stay on the court, as I always say, the greatest ability is availability. If you're sitting over there on the socially distanced bench with your individual water bottle and people wearing masks all around you, you are not helping your team.
2: Jokic's signature defensive move is he. Like we'll miss a, a bunny, and then uh, the opponent will get the defensive rebound, and then he'll just hack at the ball and commit a foul. Like, Hundred <laughs> percent. That, that's his. That's when I think about him playing defense. That's like that's what I think about. Um, so he really needs to clean that up. Um, yeah, the Pablo Prigioni open floor, um, like just trying to stifle the game flow. Fouls are so terrible, and if you're a star, you should basically never take one. I mean, I think about. This is not exactly the same situation, but like um, Bam Adebayo last night when he gets into foul trouble or even throughout the whole series, whenever he gets into foul trouble, like he will, there will be a possession where he's challenged at the rim and he will basically just forfeit the layup. Like he will not, if it's Jalen Brown, whoever, Jason Tatum coming at him, he's not going to 100% contest it because he knows that his minutes are on both ends, are more valuable on the floor than, you know, trying to uh, uh, stop one single basket. And, you know, I think, not to totally bring it back to the Celtics again, but I'm about to, uh, one of the reasons why they lost game six was Kemba Walker's uh, defense, and he just was not disciplined. And, you know, trying to take charges in the half court guarding Jimmy Butler um, when you already have two fouls is just not a smart move, and it forces uh there's a cascading effect it forces gordon hayward to come in and brad watermaker to play a little bit more than you would like in an elimination game so like i just think generally um players need to be smarter especially if you're a star you need to understand that your time on the floor is just so much more important than winning every single possession
1: very well said i could not agree with you more michael last question here on the nuggets real quick We've talked about Murray and how you think he's the next Michael Jordan, maybe even better than Jordan. And we've talked about uh, Jokic has a pretty clear path here if he tightens some things up to be just an absolute monster for the next five years. So crystal ball, what what looks, what looks does this look like for Denver when you're kind of fast forwarding the next five decades? They're going to have those guys under contract. Those are going to be pretty big contracts, so it's going to limit them somewhat um, around the edges. They've got a decision on Jeremy Grant coming up, which is going to feel a little bit like a referendum on their front office and ownership group, doesn't it, right? Given how important he was in that series. Um, if he winds up you know, pulling like, you know, his uncle, like Horace Grant and and bailing for a a big contract elsewhere. Uh, That's going to be a real hit. Um, So I'm curious, like, how how bright is their future? Do you feel like this is a team that kind of maxed out where it's going to go here? Like, they're going to be lucky to be in the Western Conference Finals these next few years? Do you believe in their title vision? um, If Murray can kind of take this to the next step? Or uh, how in on the Nuggets future
2: are you? I'm pretty high. I mean, Jamal Murray changes the trajectory just I mean, I did not expect him. I don't think anyone expected him to play as well as he did where he's basically doing Steph Curry impersonations every other night. Um so, you know, you have him locked up until 2025. You have Jokic locked up until 2023. Um, Jeremy Grant's contract situation is very interesting. I would imagine that they want to keep him. Um, you're going to lose. I would have, I, I, you know, well, okay, Paul Millsap is going to be a free agent. I don't know what your interest level is in re-signing him. He's 35. He probably should not have been on the floor at the end of that, uh, at the end of uh at the end of game five there. Um, I think
1: it's time to move forward on that one, personally. Um, I, know, just, I know. Just for everyone's <laughs> just like... I feel about <laughs>
2: Well, look,
1: I have longtime defender of Paul Millsap. Years and years and mm-hmm. years, people accuse me of overrating him on the top 100. He was like Chris Middleton before Chris Middleton. And <laughs> it's just a wrap. Like, sometimes you can just tell it's a yeah. wrap, Michael. I remember one time a few years ago, you know, Kevin Martin just got blown by... Uh, on the perimeter it was like a game in, in early october probably like actually late october right you know right right towards the start of the regular season and i was like wow this guy's career is just done and then he retired like <laughs> 5 months later um i mean it might not be quite that di- dire for paul millsap but the player who paul millsap was and kind of identifies as is no longer that guy and the nuggets need the previous version of Paul Millsap, or they need to move forward. They don't really need this in-between version who's still an effective defensive player, but who is going to expect some level of compensation for, you know, kind of time earned. Right. And then also he's going to want minutes over some younger guys who don't put in the same level of effort that he does. And that's just a tricky dynamic. I think you've got to go younger there.
2: That's, you're it's very tricky because he's taking Michael Porter Jr.'s minutes. And Michael Porter Jr. is the other just monstrous figure here. Like, if he takes a leap forward and he's an all-star in two years, which is totally possible, um, then you have a super team on your hands. Uh, If he doesn't, then it gets a little bit more complicated and you might want to use him as your most attractive trade asset. But um, with Millsap, there's also these other like qualifying attributes like that are really important. Like his locker room presence, him being basically the, uh, well, not basically is the oldest guy on the team by, a, a mile. Um, and Mason Plumley, who's the second oldest guy on the team is also a free agent. So experience matters. Um, and so I don't really know where they go, uh, with Millsap going forward. Uh, but just based on their talent, based on, you know, uh, internal improvement, Uh, Based on like Jokic is what, like a top seven player indisputably coming out of these playoffs? Like, would you say? Is that fair?
1: For sure. I think he, so, was, he was
2: already, but, you know,
1: he's yeah. he locked that up. And he just made it clear, like, I'm the only center, like, traditional center who really matters. Like, everybody else, exactly. you know, kind of cute stories. And Bede, you know, thanks for playing. But, I mean, no, it's, it's no. definitely Jokic. <laughs> Jokic.
2: Yeah, Jokic is – I remember, like, before the season started, it was like a Jokic versus Carl Towns versus Joel Embiid conversation. And it's not a conversation anymore at all. Um, so, I yeah, I like – I like this team a lot. I love their chemistry, their cohesion, their continuity. I wish Gary Harris was better. (laughs) That would probably be uh, much better than They probably would have won the series if Gary Harris looked like the Gary Harris that they thought they were getting when they signed him to that contract. Um, But look, they also have Will Barton, who didn't play at all in the bubble. He'll be back next season, um, still under contract for one more year. So I like the Nuggets a lot. I like them a lot. I'm in too. I'm definitely buying stock, but I'm not going crazy.
1: I do, you know, wonder was this like absolute peak performance from Jamal Murray? Does he come back just to earth slightly, you know, next year over the course of the entire season, and then is he able to kind of, um, you know, rekindle this level of magic during the playoffs? I do want to just see it um, over and over again. I'm not saying he can't do it. But, you know, this is one of those variables. It's not like it's an asterisk on anything because it was so much fun to watch. But these are different circumstances. There's no travel. There's no road crowds and everything else. Uh, uh, you know, d- does the progress he made stick? All of it. I, I think that's that- that's a fair question for him just because it was so revelatory. I mean, it just he was the breakout star of the NBA bubble. And I do think that they should consider hanging Jamal Murray's jersey in the arena during the finals, sort of like they would hang Nate Robinson's jersey during summer league, just as a tribute to how well he played. I feel like he deserves that treatment here in the bubble. Look, there's nothing else going on in that arena. There's like, you know, 200 people there, max. Might as well just throw in a little love for Jamal Murray.
0: After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night. It changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill and you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation.
1: All right, Michael, we've waited long enough. It's time to shift gears over to those Eastern Conference finals, which wound up breaking your heart. Now, when Sorry. I was a kid- I used to play, you know, like FIFA soccer, those kinds of video games. And when I would get to the same level over and over, I played against the same opponent and just keep losing over and over again. I'll admit to some real anger management issues. I mean, controllers might have been flying around uh, my, my childhood bedroom. I think I actually snapped a couple of my soccer trophies at one point, just like ripped a little uh, gold guy's head off because I was that (laughs) frustrated. Um, Definitely some screaming into pillows, you know, like trying to muffle my anger. Um, Look, that's what happens when you're competitive, Michael. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure Marcus Smart, you know, after, uh, you know, earlier in the series when he's having that locker room meltdown, I'm sure he can relate to what I was going through. Um, Was that where you were? after the Boston Celtics go out again before the NBA Finals? Are they ever going to get over the hump under Brad Stevens, or are you guys just doomed to be that team that just goes to the Conference Finals, mixes it up, teases you in the first half, and then goes home with flat play in the fourth quarter?
2: I honestly uh, do not understand the narrative of the Boston Celtics are a perennial disappointment. Um, I think that when you have as much success in the playoffs as they have had, um, you know, how many teams... Wait, wait, wait. Early round
1: success, though, right?
2: How many teams (laughs) would trade places with the Boston Celtics of the past, uh, I guess you know, the past five years, let's say. I think they've had a lot of success. Their best player is 22 years old. Their second best player is 23 years old. Uh, their most, or I should say their highest paid player or one of their highest paid players missed the first two games of the series. And then when he returned, uh, was just not, he did not look right at all. Um, in particular, in that last game, he's missing layups. He's, you know, getting blown by on switches. Um, I just think like they... You know, it's very disappointing to lose uh, the way they did. I thought that they, I thought this was a really good matchup for them. And I thought coming out of the Raptors series that the Raptors were a better team than Miami and built in similar fashion. Um, But, you know, I did not see uh, Tyler Hero coming, even though I thought that you know, every time he shoots the ball, I expect it to go in, but I did not see him to do what he did. I mean, in the fourth quarter last night, he had, to, I think it scored like 11 points. Every single shot goes in. Game four is a masterpiece that will live on in Miami Heat lore for the rest of our lives. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. I, I mean, it is what it is, but I think that how did you Just handle self- the loss,
1: Michael? I mean, I, we we have talked a lot about what's gone wrong for Boston, but let's let's dial in. What sure. went wrong for you last night? How did you handle this one? I tried not <laughs> Just, to text you too much. Uh, I saved it for the morning. I did invite I you to a free it. dinner um, for for at Red Lobster anytime you'd Thank like. You. I did a little googling. There's actually no Red Lobsters anywhere in the Boston area. I didn't realize it was uh, it was that drastic of a situation that they were that anti Red Lobster up there in uh, in New England. But I do also want to give you just a bit of fashion advice for fall. Okay, Michael, uh, green and gold, they clash terribly. They just never go together. You're never going to see that shamrock with that uh, gold Larry O'Brien trophy. So just look for a different color scheme as you go forward into autumn, all right?
2: No, I know. the, the uh, Might as well call them the Sacramento Kings going forward. Well, I mean, there's just no, there's no that, that's, upside here. That's too here. harsh. That's it's too harsh. all over.
1: I, I, they're, they're more like the Utah Jazz Wouldn't you say, I mean, they're, you know, competitive and scrappy. They're always in the mix. And then there's some early round playoff struggles.
2: 100%. um, You know, minus having more championships than any other organization in the sport. But what have you done for me lately, Boston? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, I, I, I don't think that there's any, like, fatal flaw with how they're constructed or a fatal flaw with the coach or anything like the fatal flaw with the front office and how they approach everything i mean at the end of the day like they really wanted tyler hero they lost a coin flip the miami heat get him with the 14th pick they have to take romeo langford the 15th pick romeo langford has just hurt his entire rookie season and he que- has a question for you real quick on
1: that has any front office ever lost more coin flips in the draft than Danny Ainge? Feels like he always wants the guy he just barely doesn't get. I mean, this guy's got the worst
2: luck at coin flips I've ever seen in my life. I'd say the, the I mean, it wasn't a coin flip, but you know, when Brian Colangelo uh, is the, the general manager of an organization and he's willing to trade you the 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 third pick plus a future pick so that you can get t- Jason Tatum instead of Markel Fultz I mean that's just that's gold baby so um well they both so have yeah, the yeah. same
1: number of made goals in the last three minutes <laughs> oh, of game geez. six I'll say that no look obviously Jeez. that's a huge win for Danny but I just feel like we constantly get the leaks uh from that green beer media about the amazing players they were going to draft if they just had the opportunity
2: <laughs> I, can't, I can't with this um I okay so like where do you want to go from here should we well, talk about here's
1: where I want to go because okay. uh, Zach was was coming after um, Brad Stevens in our email a little bit and I'm not sure I agree with anything of what he's about to say but here he goes
2: no ple- please read this email I, I love it I cannot wait to rebut this
1: he says is it time to have a conversation about Brad Stevens clearly he's a good coach but much like players shouldn't we judge coaches by their success in the postseason Otherwise, Mike Boonholzer and Mike D'Antoni are the best coaches in the NBA. <laughs> uh, this Celtics series loss was the fourth time in the last five years they've lost a winnable series. Miami, a Milwaukee team with obvious postseason flaws last year, uh, getting out coached by Nick Nurse and Spolstra, a Cleveland team where the second best player was an injured Kevin Love or George Hill, and a thoroughly beatable. Atlanta Hawks team coached <laughs> by uh, Mike Budenholzer in 2016. Uh-huh. At what point do we say that Stevens is closer to Coach Bud than to Spo? And so basically he's saying that old conversation about Draymond Green, 82-game player versus 16-game player, he's saying the same thing applies for coaches. There's 82-game coaches and 16-game coaches, and maybe Brad's not a
2: 16-game coach. What do you think, Michael? So I think this email caught me At a bad time. And I don't want to be rude to Zach, but this was the uh, most deplorable email I think you've ever read me since I've started as your your co-host here. And I want to rebut the entire thing. I think that it's obviously ludicrous. I mean, let's start with the... Cleveland what, series. Well, okay.
1: are, for sure. I mean, like, up front, are you sure you wouldn't rather have a 16-game coach like Frank Vogel? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I Let's start with the Cleveland series, okay? Um, in 2018... They're up against LeBron James in the conference finals. They do not have Kyrie Irving or Gordon Hayward, who were their two best players heading into that season because they were injured. So their leading scorer is a rookie named Jason Tatum. And everyone in the universe in the previous round picked the Celtics to lose to the Philadelphia 76ers. They stomped the Philadelphia 76ers in five games and then took LeBron James, who is one of the best players of all time, maybe the second best player who's ever lived, To seven games. So that's just obviously, uh, you know, if anything, he should be praised um, for his performance as a coach that season. Um, To say that he uh, uh, could not get past the Milwaukee Bucks last year is... Pretty silly when you just look at you know contextually what happened with the Boston Celtics last season and how it was a complete nightmare because of Kyrie Irving and um, his uh, I don't know how he sabotaged that entire year for everybody, um, and I just generally think like it's it's so tough to be in t- like uh, like measuring coaches and quantifying coach impact and everything like I just think it's really difficult and. I will say this is the first time since Brad Stevens has been the head coach of the Celtics where I've personally been disappointed in how he's kind of made decisions throughout a series, and he's made adjustments, and um, uh, well, his rotation, I thought, was v- pretty questionable. And so I well, try to... No, tell, me if you,
1: tell me if you agree with this, Michael. This was the first time I thought of the playoff losses that Zach described, where he basically had an even, if not a better team... Uh, you know, stacked up side by side and he was definitely out coached or, you know, basically Spolster just did a better job with the strategic adjustments, with the matchups, with you know, by deploying the zone when and how we did it um, with his rotations. Like to me, Brad goes home on this one with an L. It's not like a mark of shame where he's going to have to wear it for the entire summer like a scarlet letter. I'm not going to demand that. I do think that Brad took an L on this one. And when the previous series... I think that he was pretty much always either dealing with a younger team, a less experienced team, mm-hmm. or a less talented team, without a uh, you know a, a great matchup for whoever the opposing team's best player was, or for their overall you know body of talent uh, in the case of that Atlanta series. So, I guess I kind of view this as the first real L of Brad's career. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. No, I I think that that's exactly what I was trying to say. I mean, I did not see any uh, criticisms that were super loud after the Toronto Raptors series where they beat the Raptors, the defending champions, the two seed uh, without Gordon Hayward playing a minute. I mean, I thought that that was a pretty well coached series, uh, given the circumstances. Um, And look, there's just a couple things that he could have done um differently in this series that you that would have I don't know if they would have changed the outcome because so, the Miami Heat are an extremely good team, but it was tough and frustrating to watch.
1: What's your complaint list? I mean gotta be Canner, right? I mean come on. Canner's haircut looked great. Okay. I mean he, he got <laughs> okay. some work done with the barbershop. I mean they they overtime he looked awesome. But besides that, I mean outside of the haircut, what's he doing on the court? I
2: think that look like it comes down to, for me, um, the Bam Adebayo outburst at the end of Game Six is primarily because Daniel Tice is in the game, and Daniel Tice is just not a good matchup for an aggressive downhill Bam Adebayo. And you can't really—I mean, it's just not. There's not a lot of people who can defend that, but that's one of the worst. I mean having Daniel Tice pick him up above the three-point line because Bam Adebayo gets to pick up ahead of, sp- of steam, uh, you know, bringing the ball up the floor, it's just, it's not, that didn't make any sense to me at all. And so throughout the entire series and for the playoffs, really, I was really yearning for more Grant Williams. And Grant Williams, when he's on the floor, the Celtics generally play really well and they're able to do more things defensively than they could in that situation with Tyson on the court. Um so, I Michael, mean, just did just like,
1: Did you notice in Brad's first answer in the post-game uh, press conference, he said exactly that? Like, the only time they played really good defense down the stretch was when Grant was in after Tice fell
2: out? Did he actually say that? Because I can't even watch post-game. I can't... Like, I couldn't even deal. <laughs> he, he, <laughs>
1: he did say exactly that. And, well, he was giving most of the credit to Bam for just being a crazy physical presence, but he was right. essentially saying, like, look, we didn't have an answer for him. And the only time we really found some ability to kind of slow him down late was when Grant Williams was in. So just Are so you, you know- Are to hurt
2: me right now? Like, did this actually happen? Are you, like, I'm look, in immense pain right now.
1: I mean, my direct trolling and lame jokes have made no impact. <laughs> so now I'm just trying to go to the X and O stuff to, to try to uh, drive the the knife deeper. Um, mm-hmm. Any other quick adjustments you wanted to see from Brad? Because I do want to, to double back on Bam.
2: No, I mean, there was just like, you know, at the end of- game, what was it, game, I'm, I'm screwing up the games now, but uh, I think it was game four, where, you know, you're trapping instead of switching, um, and I just want to say, like, you know, uh, and we covered a lot of the other stuff in earlier episodes with, you know, matchup stuff with why wasn't smart on Hero, and, and but at the same time, you need to hide Kemba somewhere, and it's just, it gets really complicated, um, but at some point, like, it, it's it's really difficult to look at look look I think that the uh the Gordon Hayward injury injuries uh, really did a lot of damage to this entire era for Stevens and it really altered how they wanted to play and what they wanted to do long term and I think it's really uh impressive what they've accomplished despite that because not a lot of teams would sign a max free agent clear cap space for a max free agent he comes in and he's just not even close to the max. And it's so valuable in today's NBA to have guys who outperform the max um, when you pay them that much money. So like, I think it's fair to say that the Celtics have overachieved during this time. No one expected them to get to the conference finals after the year that they just had last year. So uh, in that context, I think everything's okay. And Tatum is an absolute monster regardless of his struggles in this series. You know, I think I actually might agree with
1: that last part, which might surprise some people. If you do go all the way back to the start of last season, I I would have had them probably fourth most likely to make the conference finals, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually would have had Miami probably sixth or seventh most likely. So, you know, full credit to them but they definitely overachieved this year. But the problem is you guys get ahead of yourselves there in the Boston media. You know, you want to hype up Jason Tatum as an MVP. You want this to be the greatest young wing duo ever in league history and blah, 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 blah. And that raises the expectations. It inflates everything. And it winds up turning this one into a disappointment. And I do think it actually sets the table um, for next year as well. Where is the bar for a successful season next year? Because now... There's no more inexperience or youth excuses. These guys are old enough to do it. There's you know no more free passes for Brad Stevens. Right, he's going to be under the um, the microscope in ways that he really hasn't been uh, in previous years because of you know, the accumulation of these conference finals exits. You're going to have your main core guys having multiple years of uh, repetitions in conference finals. You're going to have Tatum a year or earlier established in that top ten player conversation. There are going to be real expectations on the Celtics next year. You're going to have Kemba Walker no longer just being the the little guy, you know, the nice, uh, fresh face, the change from Kyrie Irving. It's going to be, can this guy stay on the court in the fourth quarter and guard anybody? Can he do a better job of creating offense when it matters? I mean, these kinds of questions are all coming for the Celtics. What is next year's um, you know standard for success? Is it finals or bust, or are you going to try to submarine expectations uh, much like a you know a pollster or spin guy before these upcoming presidential uh, no, debates?
2: No, I I I don't think it's finals or bust. I don't think that that label is applicable to a team that has. Uh, this type of roster with this much flexibility. Um, I mean, they don't have all the flexibility in the world, but they are are flexible with um, regards to their age and where their production comes from. So, I mean, when you say that, uh, like, I do think that they should be a championship contender um, and expectations should be high. But when you say that, uh, you know, Tatum and Jalen are now old enough to do it because they have experience, what I'm just wondering what like precedent you base that on. Because the one fact is that Bam Adebayo just wipes you off the court—he's 23 years old. That
1: Jamal Murray was better than either one of those guys throughout the playoffs—he's 23 years old. This is a well, youth so- movement right now. It's it's wide open. It's available. This league can be taken. Let's see it. Let's not go 0-3 so, in, the, in the last five minutes of a game again, Jason Tatum. I don't even have the heart, Michael, because you're hurting so badly to add up Jason Tatum's clutch stats from this series. But if I did, his field goal percentage would be pretty darn close to zero in those moments, and it was painful to watch. And I've been going easy on you, and uh, we made it an hour, and now I finally snapped. These guys have to be okay. better. Come on.
2: Okay, okay. So uh, Jamal Murray... Uh, He's at home, correct? Is that accurate? So goodbye to Jamal Murray. I will say, uh, I have a stat for you, and I tweeted this out earlier, but I want the listeners to hear it in case they do not follow me on Twitter, at Michael Vipina. Ben, how many players in NBA playoff history have logged 500 minutes, averaged 25 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists, at Jason Tatum's age? Is he the only one? He is the only one ever to do it, and when you compare him to, if you can, you can drop some of those qualifiers down a little bit, also. And the company is basically LeBron, uh, Kobe. So this is why he needs to be in the finals
1: next year, Michael. You can't have it both ways. That's the thing. You guys love to hype this kid, but then when he when yes. he doesn't show up, you you blame it on well, Brad, you blame it on Kemba, you blame it on Marcus Smart's shooting, you blame it on Gordon Gordon's injuries. He has to wear this loss, too, and I I think next season is defined by Jason Tatum's comeback. I want to see more and better play from Tatum, especially when it matters. I don't want to hear any more excuses about why the offense breaks down late in games. I want Tatum going to the basket. I want Tatum creating good shots. I want Tatum not settling for the crazy fallaways, which he loves. I want him stepping confidently into those step-back threes when appropriate. I want him exerting his influence. If he's supposed to be the greatest 22-year-old performer in the history of the NBA playoffs, he needs to show me a lot more than he just did in this series.
2: I know, but he did just get to the conference finals, and he's the best player on a team at, at 22 years old. Like that's All right, super well, impressive. I've got, super, I've, but I've, I've got I, a fourth place medal ready for him. That's fine. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> so um, I, I think the, the the overarching point is that the future is very bright for him, and that is that should be the takeaway instead of of, of condemning him for struggles at his age and with his experience level. Not but condemning
1: them, just pointing them I, out because you're never going to hear
2: it on state TV I, I, there in Boston. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, I do think that some of those mid-range followers, um, they are a little bit annoying for sure. I think that we do know that there are there is a place, a time and a place for those shots. They are necessary in certain circumstances. Um, he goes to them in spots that I I would not, and I I question, I think that, you know, it's probably very painful for that coaching staff, but if you just go back and watch the end of that game, the last six minutes, I would say, there's really nothing that Tatum does wrong. He's not shying away from the moment at all. He touches the ball in every possession. He had, like, three potential assists to Kemba, who missed four wide-open threes uh, in that stretch, and the Celtics just basically never recovered. I mean... You want to go to, like, the five-minute mark. Um, They're down three after Bam eviscerates their defense for, like, the sixth straight possession. And Tatum hits a pull-up three. One play later, he attacks the zone, drives the zone, has a finger roll finish over Bam that was just breathtaking. Um, And then he gets one more shot, really, for the rest of the game, a corner three that was contested that he misses. Mm, And mm, mm. – but if you just watch Boston how Boston like the shots Boston took instead I mean Jalen Brown is on this team Jalen Brown misses short arms like a 10-foot pull-up that he's been drilling the entire series Marcus Smart takes some of the dumbest shots uh on record um a a Uh, mid-range shot misser I've said it for years and I (laughs) feel so great about that take just
1: an elite (laughs) shot misser
2: um, he takes some shots that, you know, on zero pass possessions where the ball just does not get worked around at all. Um, he, yeah, he, I can't, he's like melting my brain trying to re- think about these possessions. But no. I just don't blame, I guess the bottom line is like, I don't really blame when you say that he's over 3 at the end. It's like, yeah, you'd want a little bit more, obviously, when you look at a box score, but when you just look at the flow of the basketball game that's not really how like the criticism doesn't really jibe with the like what actually happened in I game, guess I don't know I
1: I watched it over and over and over again I bet again you did yeah for the last 3 <laughs> weeks and I kept waiting for it To me, he's easily the most talented player on that team, especially from an offensive standpoint. And I kept thinking, Mm -hmm. huh, when is he going to get that mentality of, all right, this is my time, this is my moment. You contrast it with Bam. I mean, Bam was possessed in the fourth quarter. He was playing very well in game six, and then he was like, this game is back and forth. Boston's making this crazy momentum push. Season is hanging in the balance. I am going to dunk Daniel Tice's body through the rim, maybe three times in a row. And then he's going to have to go sit on the sideline because he fouled out and he can't guard me. That is the mentality I want to see from Mr. Jason Tatum. And I think at some point here over the next <laughs> three or four years, we're probably going to see it. Can we speak quickly here? about Bam's attacks from the top of the key, Michael. Do they remind you of anyone? I guess maybe the most recent comparison point I can think of is Giannis kind of learning about how to go downhill uh, as that five man against a, a spread court. I was stunned to see how effective he was in those big moments, how Boston just grappled, you know, back on their heels didn't really have answers for him. Who do you even compare those bam drives to? Because he's had some issues actually handling the ball in these playoffs, you know, with some turnovers and I get a little bit nervous anytime he dribbles a couple times in a row. Even though he's a very skilled passer, I just like it when he's more of a stationary passer as opposed to an on the move guy or in traffic guy. And yet here he was turning into some sort of uh you know, Giannis offensive presence, getting himself all the way to the the rim, drawing help defenders, kicking out to a three pointer. I mean, it was a tour de force performance from Bam. Who did that remind you of, if anybody?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, in the middle of the game, I tweeted the Giannis comparison for sure. Um, someone who can penetrate through the first layer of defense and two hand dunk at the basket. (laughs) I mean, that's the list is not very long there. Um, And the Celtics were really cognizant of the three-point threats, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, Goran Dragic, who I don't think Goran was on the floor, but he was killing them the whole series when he was. Um, So Bam was an absolute monster. And, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, back in December I wrote this profile about him, and I just remember, you know, we were sitting on a couch in the, lobby of the four seasons and I'm talking to him about like incremental growth and um, how he imagined this season going and the fact that he just there seems to be when I watch him play basketball like literally every month there's a new part of his game that I did not see the previous month and I saw that in this this uh, at the end of game six when he's faced up against Jalen on the on the left wing. And in that situation, like, he really had no business even putting the ball on the ground, getting to the rim with one dribble. That's just really difficult against someone like Jalen, who was playing just incredible defense on the ball throughout the series, and in particular that game, just an absolute hound. And bam, in and out dribble, gets to the paint, one dribble, um, and left-handed, like a left-handed jump hook. Like, off the glass. And I, when he did that, I sat up in my seat, and I was like, oh, my God. This dude is just, like, he's a cyborg. Like, he, there's just something about that's in his game that wasn't there, uh, like, two months ago. And it's, like, it's he's so it, – it, it's amazing. And if you even look at the footage of his jump shot and, and how he treated his jump shot um, earlier this season – Like, he didn't even really have one that he was comfortable going to. He had this little push floater from, like, the free throw line and in that he would really practice on, and that's something we talked about. And then last night, he's just, like, he's at the free throw line or maybe a couple feet behind it in the flow of play, and he's just confidently stroking a jump shot. Like, swish, every time. He's money from the free throw line. It's like, there will be a time in the future, in the very near future, where he is like a 37% three-point shooter at a decent volume, believe that. He's he's incredible.
1: I love that prediction. I'm with you. He's, he's got some soft touch from all sorts of... I mean, the jump hook, the little mm-hmm. uh, push floater from five feet or, or eight feet that he likes, the the mid-range shot, of course, like you're describing. I mean, he's... He's got a lot to his offensive game. Uh, everything you're saying about his incremental growth and just the development under Spolstra, I think he's probably the purest version of what Heat culture is trying to talk about. Um, that's a-, a bam out of bio going from a guy who doesn't start in year one to an All Star and now Finals attendee in year three. It's pretty wild. All right, Michael, we're closing on this one. One sentence explanation. Who are you picking to win the finals? How many games and what's the key deci- deciding factor? And then name
2: your finals MVP. I I mean, you know, I picked against the Lakers in every round. I'm 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 continuing that trend. Yes. I'm going I feel like I should reverse jinx this, but I can't in my heart say that I think the Lakers will win. So I'm going Heat in seven. Uh, I have a wild card finals MVP here. Goran Dragic. Correct. That is who I'm going with for finals MVP. Um, I don't know what his odds are in Vegas, but that dude is such a gamer. uh, I cannot wait to see what he has in store for, uh, you know, the Lakers have really good defenders and everything, but I don't know. I think their 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 uh, attention will be occupied elsewhere, as the Celtics was um, throughout that series. So uh, Goran, incredible. He's my Finals MVP. And if the Miami Heat take care of the basketball and offense, and get shots, and don't turn it over, and don't let my uh, don't let the Lakers attack and transition constantly, as as the other two teams, the other three teams did earlier in the playoffs. I think they'll have a pretty good shot. I was toying with picking the Heat as well, but I got to admit, game five kind
1: of spooked me. You know, I feel like we're going to get better play, longer minutes from LeBron in the finals. I feel like, unfortunately, the, the most obvious and simplest explanation here is that LeBron's going to do his thing and take it home. I'll take him for finals MVP. I'll take Lakers in six. And I do just want to congratulate the Los Angeles Lakers for winning the 2020 NBA finals. Michael picked against you, so it's a wrap. (laughs) Congratulations. Go ahead and start that socially distanced trophy uh, celebration and uh, championship parade. Go ahead and start planning it right now. All right, Michael, on that note, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail.com at gmail.com we'd love getting all of your in-game uh you know observations takes analysis anything that i said today that pissed you off as a celtics fan okay let me hear about it anything that michael said that pissed you off if you're a lakers fan okay let's hear about it openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com and check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V and Victor Pina. Be sure to check him out on GQ 538 and everywhere else he's been writing here uh, during the course of the, the ongoing NBA playoffs. Uh, you guys can find me on Instagram at Ben.Goliver on Twitter at Ben Golliver, Be sure to check out my Washington Post newsletter. I wrote about Nikola Jokic this week, and I've got a bunch of final stuff coming out this week as well. So check out washingtonpost.com sports. All right, Michael, that's enough plugs. Until later this week, I will talk to you.
2: Talk soon, Ben.